This is Craig Morris, and you're listening to the Potsdam Summer School Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about risk perceptions. In previous episodes of this podcast, we've spoken about feelings versus facts. I assume that if you're listening to this podcast, you accept facts. Some of you may also criticize those who put feelings above facts. But here's the problem. We all have feelings about facts that are actually wrong. For instance, some people are afraid of flying, but not afraid of getting into cars, even though cars are very dangerous, while few people die in planes. Pia Schweitzer, a project leader at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, explains why. If I'm in control, I can act according to my own capabilities mm-hmm. and my own, um, I can rely on myself. Mm-hmm. When I'm driving a car. When I'm driving a car, I'm okay. in full control. Whereas in reality, you're not. When we fly, we have to put our faith not only in other people, but in a system of regulations that in the end is political. In other words, we more or less have to believe that our country works. Yeah, you, you, you hand over control and agency and trust in um, institutions, in regulation, that people will do their jobs. Ortwin Renn, scientific director at the IASS, points out that lots of people are worried about terrorism and chemicals in food even though these risks are very low in Western countries. So what risks do we face? Take a moment to guess what kills the most people in developed nations. I'll be back in a second. In high-income countries, 60% of premature deaths are related to smoking, drinking, unbalanced diets, and a lack of exercise. And the biggest environmental risk is air pollution. These are diseases of civilization, really. We tend to spend a lot of time worrying about the wrong types of risk, such as chemicals in our food, instead of whether we eat the right food and get enough exercise. One reason we do that is because we don't have control over what chemicals are put into our food. And so we worry about that more. But when it comes to climate change, there's another problem. Climate change is what we call a complex risk. It is global, highly interconnected. So it's about nature, technology, and society. So dealing with with natural disasters, and in my case with with flooding, with river flooding, we often get caught by by surprise. That's Bruno Merz of the German Research Center for Geosciences. He talked about how complex risks can cause us problems. Everybody who deals with flood protection is aware that flood protection systems are designed for a specific safety level. So maybe the 100-year or the 200-year safety level. That means that in case we have the 500-year flood, they are overtaxed and they will fail. And each expert knows that 
that uh, what what failure failure would mean. When I asked him whether climate change would make flood risks worse, I expected him to say yes, but that's not what he answered. The point is that we are dealing with with complex systems, so we have all these kind of physical processes, uh, including climate change. And uh, well, we we have of course an idea what what can happen, but there are large uncertainties. In other words, climate change will make risks more complex. As a scientist, Bruno obviously wanted to avoid having to make predictions about the future. In addition, he also said that what's worse is defined by society. Um, so these are the physical processes, and on the other hand, there are the socio-economic processes, because in the end, the damage and, and the harm for people and ecosystems and infrastructure, that, that is what, what hurts, what, what counts. In many cases, we, we know what can happen, and we, 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 just, uh, we just do not prepare for that. To make things even more complex, climate change is non-linear with tipping points. So for instance, if we thaw the permafrost in the tundra, that process might release a lot of methane gas, which would then speed up climate change very rapidly. In climate science, a tipping point is when climate change begins to reinforce itself very quickly. Otvin says that some tipping points may even look like a good thing until it's too late. He gave the example of lakes. The lake, of course, has a lot of fish and other types of uh, biota in it, and they first like these uh, new nutrients. It's really something that uh, they think it's good, but you also have a growth of algae and all kinds of other things, and that gets out of proportion. And at a specific point, uh, that growth goes on to a degree that all the oxygen is removed from the lake, and that means everything dies. And that is being done within a very, very short period of time. So if you reach that specific tipping point, the lake collapses. When things begin to get complex, you can't just run trial and error experiments. Simulations are one way of sort of running a trial and error in a virtual world, but we can't conduct, for instance, for climate change, another planet to see what it would look like without our fossil fuel emissions. Another thing that makes climate change hard for people to understand is that it is counterintuitive. It's so far ahead in time. Your carbon emissions today will affect the planet that your grandchildren live in. That's not the same thing as the pollution from our cars and power plants affecting the air we breathe right now. To understand these impacts, the public has to take it on faith. We have to rely on the experts, and we all really lack experience about this. So how can you gain the public's trust as an expert, especially in these days when the public is becoming skeptical of experts? This is Catherine McComas of Cornell University. We have to understand first where our audiences are coming from. What are their perceptions, their experiences, their knowledge, and their beliefs? Because these will be 
brought to bear on how they evaluate risk information, the extent to which they'll trust the source, um, how they will react um, and either adopt or reject a message. It also helps you to better understand if you want to reach these audiences, what are the best ways to reach them. Often experts go into public consultation thinking their job is to tell the public what's right and wrong. Catherine says if the focus is on building trust instead of on changing people's minds, the conversation is different. So every effort to communicate, you need to understand what sort of goal uh, you have in, in place. And changing people's attitudes and, and behaviors may for some be the gold standard of what you want to do, but you know that needs to be considered very carefully along with the ethics of doing that and also the potential for um, unintended negative consequences such as something backfiring or, or having the exact opposite. But what do you mean by the ethics of doing is it? Uh, is it unethical to try to change someone's mind? It can be unethical to change someone's mind. You need to think long and hard about why are you seeking to do this? What are, what are your motivations for wanting to change somebody's mind? Is it to, for instance, so that they can protect themselves, say to evacuate an area that's going to see a high storm surge following a hurricane? It may be to protect that person. It may be to protect the first responders from going in in a very dangerous situation. So perhaps those motivations can be viewed as being very noble. But every time you try to persuade somebody to change their, their views, well, A, it's very hard to do that in the first place. Um, B, you reduce their ability to make a choice for their, own, for their own life. You may remember what Otvin said in our episode on governance. Agency is crucial. That's your ability to act. By forcing people to follow orders from experts, we take agency away from them, even if we are probably saving their lives. We should at least not be surprised under such conditions if a few people reject this loss of agency and refuse to evacuate. I mean, people want to be free. That has implications. People, when, when people feel that their freedom of choice is restricted, they can sometimes um, fight back. And if you trust me to get yeah. to that issue of trust, uh -huh. then you may be more likely to, to listen to what I'm saying. But if you don't trust me, or if you believe what I'm asking you to do is very counter against your values, uh -huh. then that can increase the trust that you have in me, and it can result in somebody doing the exact opposite. Catherine says we sometimes think of people refusing to evacuate as irrational, but in reality, they often have very good reasons for wanting to stay home. The plans for where to take them may not seem convincing, for instance, and they may also want to stay home in order to protect their property. They might not be doing it because 10, they've evacuated the last 10 times and there was no need. Yeah. And so yeah. there are these reasons that can be very rational, motivating reasons for them not to evacuate. I told Catherine about an engineer who once called the public childish for not accepting his scientific analysis. I often begin some talks with, again, the fallacy of the irrational public, that people have very rational reasons for, for their decisions and for their beliefs. And if you ask them, they'll often um, be very happy 
to explain that. And so the idea that somebody's acting childish, again, acts like they're immature and they're not considering and they're not elaborating on their reasons why. And I, I think that there's a host of research that shows that people often have very strong reasons behind their beliefs and the judgment that it's irrational. It really doesn't get us anywhere or it's behaving childish. It really doesn't get us toward, toward our goals. So we have to get past a belief that if we just make people think more like scientists, mm -hmm. then we'll be able to solve these problems. We have to, as scientists and engineers, understand more of what values and beliefs and attitudes and experiences members of the public are bringing to the table also. On the other hand, it's not always easy to get the public involved productively. Pete Selke, directs the Risks Division at Dialogik, an NGO that works on communication and cooperation. The organization is based in Stuttgart. One of its projects was mediation between citizens opposing the new train station, a multi-billion euro endeavor. You may have heard of it. It brought down the government of the state of Baden-Württemberg in 2011. And that state is now the largest jurisdiction in the world headed by the Green Party. The capital of the state, Stuttgart, also has a green mayor. It's the largest city in the world with one. This political revolution began with a protest against a decades-old plan for a fancy new train station. I asked Pete to tell me what went wrong in communicating the project which was called Stuttgart 21. He says big infrastructure projects in Germany often take 10 or 15 years just to plan. But at that point, it's already too late to have participation because too many things, too many like, you know, experts were paid already, too many things were done already. Mm. And actually that's the German law. Like the German law um, asks for um, participation of people um, pretty much at the end mm -hmm. of the planning stage and then you actually can say like well actually I'm, I'm affected by this idea but you have almost no chance that something will be changed again. Pete says the project was announced and proposed to the public in the early and mid 1990s but it initially drew little attention and then construction began in 2010. Citizens started learning about the details and they didn't like what they heard. During 10 years of construction, an adjacent park would remain a construction site. That's not the main point. The main point is that there are like trees or were trees that are hundreds of years old. And in the Second World War, when Stuttgart was really um, broken down and everything was bombed out, um, the, the citizens back then decided we will not cut those trees to actually have firewood to get some heat in the really strong winter time. They preferred to freeze and protect the trees. Exactly. But now we do this for a station? That doesn't make sense. And that, that knowledge was there. That knowledge was there. The historic knowledge was there. So people with local knowledge remembered hardships. The trees were symbols for them of the right decisions being made when things were really tough. Thus, the public's sudden outrage against Stuttgart 21 only seems irrational when you don't know the history. Once you do, the public reaction seems, well, admirable. P. 
Pete also moderates discussions between wind farm developers and public protesters. Here, the facts are very clear. There is no science behind the charge that wind turbines are a risk to human health. On the contrary. But Pete cannot argue with scientific data when he meets with outrage. We had a round table with city councillors and concerned citizens and there were people in the room, like audience in the room, and um, you know everybody was like um, happy to contribute their their own facts about the process. And one of the main arguments against wind power is infrasound. So there's one study in the U.S. that said there's a harmful effect of that, and many others that say there's not. Um, like this, this study is used by all initiatives in Germany, basically mm -hmm. saying like it was an American psychologist and said, like, well, this you know causes headaches and causes like uh, insomnia and, and whatever else. Um, and there were literally like a hundred studies who, who proved the opposite. There is no. It's even more certain as if you talk about like mobile radiation um, of, of phones, like whether that is harmful or not, because there's more uncertainty involved with that than with the infrasound. But that infrasound. Um, basically um, is something people fear and in that process in this round table there was literally a woman um, saying like you know you don't understand the issue here it's that I'm scared for my kids safety and health because of infrasound because they can't sleep anymore because they get headaches because they I don't know what it does maybe it causes cancer because I just heard that there are like cows with disabilities born next to a wind park so what does it do to my kids? And those fears are present in there. And of course, it's hard then to say like, well, you know, but those fears are just irrational. It's, you know, it's just not there. But this is the typical response of the other side, of course. And like, well, this is irrational, what you think, because infrasound doesn't make any harm. So are some people just making up the idea of infrasound from wind turbines? Well, there is infrasound, but infrasound you also have if you have like your, your um, washing machine running mm -hmm. or when a car comes by. Um, it's, it's all the sound that you can't hear because it's infrasound, um, but still there are sound waves basically. In other words, we are surrounded by infrasound, but some people are worried about it only from wind turbines. So how does Pete moderate in such a situation? There are processes where it's impossible to solve. I mean, I had those processes that were dying because of that. If it comes to that point, the people stand up. I mean, you have this also like there's a, 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 an increase of leukemia uh, around a nuclear power plant. So what does it mean? Does it mean something or doesn't it mean something? The experts say like, well, it doesn't mean something because probability means something else and so on and so on. But if there is a woman standing up in the audience saying like, well, my kid has leukemia, what are you going to tell me? Um, of course, it's a different issue then. Um, and the only way I think um, how to deal with this is to start way earlier in the process to discuss together what do we need to believe something? What do we need to know to feel safe? What are the things that make sense and don't make sense? And how can we make sure that we live on the same intersubjective level of knowledge? And that is actually what we do now like where we place the most emphasis is on the common ground of knowledge. And then we can go to the values. Given that some people will always be against something and we can't take a vote on scientific facts, what kind of sense does public participation make in democracies? I mean, people are already able to vote, right? Why should the public be involved in decisions that require expertise 
that the public doesn't have. The, the legitimacy of participation then is that we want to have a recommendation by people to decision makers. To say like, we look at this issue, um, we try to look at it from many different sides, we organize it in a way that um, there are like all different kinds of groups represented, um, or different kinds of citizens that you have like, you know, old ones, young ones, female, male, poor, rich, and so on. Um, to have many different views at the table. And I didn't find any process so far where those recommendations were useless. Uh, usually it's always something where citizens say like, well, now I understand better what you're doing and what's the problem and the complexity, but I still think here you could do something and usually it's not a problem to do that and it's fine for everybody. While Pete says it always makes sense to have the public involved in infrastructure decisions, one participant at the summer school Isabella wasn't so sure. So I think that sometimes government need to withstand protest to get something done. I mean, I had this example with uh, this uh, king of um, Bavaria, König Ludwig II, uh -huh. building those castles, and now they are kind of the source um, of tourism or for Bavaria. Yeah, people love to visit these palaces. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from all over the world, and they are fascinated by it. and. I've visited this, all of them. Yeah, yeah of, of course. <laughs> but also there is, um, is another example, which is uh, the Munich airport. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was really pushed through by one politician that um, there was a huge protest against this airport. Mm -hmm. And now this airport is actually the reason for um, the um, economic success of Munich, because Munich and Frankfurt are one of the hubs, right? So Munich has an, is an international hub. And also for fairs and stuff, it's one of the locations with Frankfurt. And um, and, and still, I'm from Munich. Yeah. Okay. And still, and still, I mean, there is this because they want to enlarge and extend it and build a new terminal and stuff. And people are protesting so much, you know, because there's kind of nature and some animal and some I don't know beetle who needs to be protected. I don't know. So I think, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes. In the long run, it, 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 it's really necessary to kind of not ignore protests, but to push it through. So even at a conference on sustainability, we meet with such opinions. In general, it's important to understand that we all misjudge risk, which means that we are all wrong about some facts. It would therefore behoove experts to take this humility with them into deliberations with the public. And I do mean deliberations. We need to be in constant dialogue with citizens, not just include them in consultations long after decisions have already been made. The 2017 Potsdam Summer School was hosted by the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, the Alfred Wegener Institute, the German Research Center for Geosciences, the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, and the University of Potsdam in cooperation with the capital city of Potsdam. The music you are listening to is A Perceptible Shift by Andy Cohen, and the water you heard was recorded at the Dreisam River. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if so, 
Tell your friends and share links to the show on social media. For now, this is Craig Morris, Senior Fellow at the IASS, signing off.